Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. What are some of the weirdest jobs you've ever had that have nothing to do with where you are today, like doing what you do at HEU or even on this podcast? Okay, I have a list. <laughs> Just a chronological <laughs> list? Uh, like, what was your first yeah. job? My first job, um, I ran a snack bar, and I planned and ran roller skating birthday parties for children. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Then what's your list? Okay. So my list, so that, so those things. Mm -hmm. um, I was like a travel planner for a writer, um, and I think I actually ghosted that job, which is terrible. Um, oh, I, I see. You arranged their travel. Yeah. You were a telemarketer? I was a telemarketer. For, can you say for whom? You shouldn't say for him. Oh, this regard. Keep going. For all, all sorts of people. I mean, oh, okay. it's like you were just like a telemarketing like, company. Oh yeah, I would just go into the little telemarketing oh, office and like they'd feed me my script and I would dial phones and okay and try to like get people to stay on the phone and take oh, surveys goodness, and listen to me talk about things. I guess you're that's kind of related like my, to this. You're, I was going to say, but listen you are describing my talking. nightmare. Just like talking on the phone. I hate. I hate. Oh, I love talking it. On the phone. I'm oh, so goodness. curious about like everybody. Uh, um, I was a nanny. Okay. I was a, I, I guess I could say I was a bus driver for a short what's, time what's in college. The, what's the I guess part of that? Um, well, so I drove like volunteers around in like a very, very, very large van. And I like had to make my little stop and get them to where they were going. And Did it have a, did it have no, like the no, bus no. door? It was with a van. The I did get pulled over by the cops once <laughs> in my van. But anyway, so <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> let's all right. not talk about <laughs> no, no, no. We won't. We we don't have to do to incriminate you. That's quite the. Yeah. That's, that's quite the background. I had one that I wanted to do, but the I think they never took my job application seriously. I applied to be a Zamboni driver. Oh my gosh! That yeah. would be so amazing. I would have yeah. absolutely loved that. I just walked into the ice skating rink and I was like, "I saw your sign. That sounds cool." Oh my gosh! And they no. Oh, if They're only. Like, your, your life could be so different now, Vicky. I know. I could have been a Zamboni driver. Oh, man. What about you? I So I've not had, this has got to be quick, because I haven't had nearly that many oh. jobs. Mm. Um, mainly because, so I did, like, I was a, I worked as a caterer for a little bit. It was real, like, party down atmosphere. And did I you worked. Have a vest? Uh, no, this is in rural oh. Pennsylvania. We did not dress up. Okay. Uh, I... Worked in a pizza shop for a while. At one point, like, I could actually make a pretty mean pizza. I can't anymore. It was a long time ago. Um, mm. But the thing I did for the longest was I grew up in the country, and I worked on a ranch as essentially mm -hmm. the groundskeeper <gasps> from before I probably should have until halfway child. through college. Um, so yeah. what, what were some of your roles as I the groundskeeper? I did a lot of mowing and weed whacking, if I'm being honest. Weed whacking is um, fun. It really is. It, it's, yeah. uh, I was just like responsible for like fixing stuff that broke down, mending fences. I didn't take care of the horses at all, actually. It's funny. They, it was a horse farm. Mending it was a ranch. Um, and I didn't, like, I didn't touch the horses. I didn't even like the horses. They were not my friends. Um, but yeah, really? I, really, like, I had all through my brothers, too, had this job. It was like <gasps> friends of the family before me. Yeah, I was the second most liked of the four brothers throughout the process. But you were still like a legacy hire. I I, I was the legacy hire. <laughs> I was the last of four. <laughs> I guess we got to let him do it too. Yeah, yeah. So the good old days of working on a ranch in rural Pennsylvania. Oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> 
Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. So, Vicki, you uh, you never know, do you, where your professional path might lead? Yeah, I guess or, or where it doesn't. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, we didn't have time for this, and this will be – we do this all the time. So there will be, there'll be time for this later. But someday I will talk about my, I have to say, former hatred of plants. And this comes about from a professional, uh, a professional setting. Um, but today – since we don't have time for that, we're going to talk about, or excuse me, we're going to chat with someone who grew up in Indiana and first dreamed of being a farmer, but ultimately became an oceanographer. Wow, that's like someone who grows up in Alaska and becomes a tropical forest biologist. I don't know. It's it's pretty wild. Uh, and it's it. I was wondering, like, how does someone living in landlocked Indiana get interested in ocean science? And so to answer that, I'm going to bring in producer Devin Reese. Hi, Devin. Hey, Shane. I'm pleased to be here to delve into that very question. So, Devin, why is Shane musing about career trajectories today? Well, maybe he's having a midlife crisis. <laughs> oh. No, I actually think... <laughs> I think it's because we're going to talk with an oceanographer today who has this fascinating background and who I discovered when I interviewed him that even in retirement, he still got that research mind. He's still asking questions and doing research. I mean, that's all uh, midlife crisis aside. That's something we can all aspire to, right? Yep, I agree. It was really inspiring to talk with the oceanographer. His name's Tommy Dickey. And basically, thanks to some mentors along the way and his own personality, a real stick-to-it personality, he, he went from that small farming town to become a PhD researcher. He's in ocean sciences at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Great. Let's hear it. Good morning. First of all, thanks for inviting me to do this podcast for you. As a way of introduction, I am a distinguished professor emeritus and a secretary of the Navy, chief of Naval Operations Chair in Ocean Sciences at the University of California, Santa Barbara. That's a long title. Could you explain this designation as the chief of Naval Operations Chair in Ocean Sciences? What does that mean? I was named a Navy chair in 2008 making me one of 12 uh, distinguished uh, Navy chairs. And uh, the program began in 1984 with some of the original uh, recipients of this award being Bob Ballard of Titanic fame and Walter Monk, possibly, likely, the most important oceanographer of the 20th century. Uh, And um, so I was really, really fortunate to receive this honor, and I was the first one outside of strict physical oceanography to receive this honor, and um, I received it primarily because of my interdisciplinary work and my work in developing the field of biooptics. In reading about you, I really noticed the emphasis on the interdisciplinary aspects of your work. Oceanography is pretty much um, done interdisciplinary for for the early years, the Challenger back in the 1880s, 
But then, um, I guess I would say around 1950 or so, uh, it, it became very disciplinary science. And so physical oceanographers kind of looked down on biological oceanographers and chemical oceanographers, and they didn't really uh, cooperate or collaborate that much. And I had always kind of had interest in looking at the edges of things. And uh, in this case, I, I was interested in kind of the biophysical, bio-optical, biogeochemical aspects. Well, I wasn't trained in any of this, but uh, I started doing experiments and talking to people. And from that, um, we developed programs where, which were interdisciplinary. So where did your interest in looking at the edges of things by doing experiments start? I mean, didn't you grow up on a farm? To clarify a little bit, I didn't really live on the farm, <laughs> but <Okay. laughs> I lived across the street, if you like, or adjacent to farms my entire life. And so I would, as a little boy, you always want to play with different kinds of things. So farm toys were a big deal to me. And the farmers who lived right next to my house basically were really, really nice guys. And um, so I'm sure that uh, the fact that they, they really enjoyed the kids and one of them made, made kites for us. In fact, he became famous as the kite man. You can imagine this was back in probably the 1950s. And so I was endeared to these people, to tell you the truth. They were, they were fantastic. So that, that inspired me to want to become a farmer like them because I thought they were really cool. So when did you start thinking about other options for yourself besides becoming a farmer? We lived in this little town called Farmland, and then we moved to a little bit larger uh, town. It was called Union City, and it was also small. And there, um, the fourth grade was a very important year of, of school for me in that I had a teacher who really kind of took me under her wings and moving to a new town, and it wasn't easy shifting, as you know, going from one school to another and different population of students and uh, a little bullying action going on there. <laughs> so this teacher took me under her wing, and uh, she thought I had a lot of potential. During that year, my father, who was working in a local factory and a, a nighttime sports writer, uh, decided that he wanted me to go to one of his one of the basketball games he was reporting on. So I went and he said, okay, now, how about instead of me writing the column, you write the column. This is at 10 years old. <laughs> so I said, well, okay, I'll, I know I'm going to need some help here. I said, oh, I'll help you. We wrote the article and it got published in the local newspaper. My picture got in, which was very cool. <laughs> so at that point, I, I really became motivated to do something really good in my life, I suppose you would have to say. So I really started working hard to get straight A's, do the best I could at school. And um, fortunately, I had, I had some good teachers. And uh, so that, that kind of launched me to go to Ohio, Ohio University. And there I received uh, scholarships, basically paying my way uh, because of my academic uh, credentials, I suppose you would say. And so I studied physics and math. Wow. So 
I have a couple of questions. First of all, you know, you grew up across from a farm and you said your father worked in a factory. So how did your parents respond to the incredible fact that by the end of high school, you were so highly motivated that you went to college in physics? What was that like for them? Well, I, I think my, my parents were really, really nice people. And they, um, I think that at some, at some time later on in my career, I think they were a little bit awed by where I was and what I was doing and honestly didn't fully understand what I was doing, but they knew it was good. <laughs> they really wanted me to go to college, and that was the main thing. But, uh, yeah, I, I, it was sometimes it's hard to communicate with them what I was really trying to achieve, but they were unbelievably supportive. My brother and I were the first to go to college, and they both, uh, both of our parents, really wanted us to go to college because my father, who was this sensational basketball player, was not able to go to college because of a physical problem. So I was selected to go to Argonne National Laboratory, then under the Atomic Energy Commission, for a summer program. So in that summer program, I learned what research was about. And so the, uh, the work that I did was in plasma physics. And um, just for viewers who are not too familiar with plasma physics, it's basically ionized gases, which make up 99% of the universe. So the interesting part of this is that our project was to minimize the formation of plasmas in the zero gradient synchrotron at Argonne. It's quite amazing, really. I mean, just to look at what you're doing now, and then hear this, hear this story of where you started in pretty much a landlocked place. I mean, I guess you had the Great Lake, but I mean, <laughs> you grew up in a landlocked place so I imagine that you could never have predicted the path that your life was going to take from there? Absolutely not. I didn't even know what an ocean was. I didn't see the ocean until I graduated from college. So uh, this, this transition from wanting to be a farmer to becoming an oceanographer is, is quite, a, <laughs> quite an amazing story. <laughs> so one of my friends and I, I guess our last year in college, we decided that um, we needed to see the ocean. <laughs> and so we drove to Florida and drove around, and I was, I was in awe for sure. <laughs> the Vietnam War was raging, and I was about to be drafted into the Army of Marines, and I didn't really want to do that. And so... Um, I found the Coast Guard, which is a humanitarian service, and I like to describe it as the only service which trains people to save lives. And so I was, I was taken by what that was about, and so I enlisted. I couldn't go in as an officer um, for various reasons. but So I enlisted for four years into the Coast Guard, and uh, during that time, I taught electronics for the first three years, and then in the last year, my fourth year, we had racial strife on our Coast Guard base, which was off the tip of Manhattan, a place called Governor's Island. And so I guess I had a good rapport with my students, and the commanding officer of the training center decided that he wanted to send a group of four of us 
to a race relations school in Patrick, Patrick Air Force Base, Cocoa Beach, Florida. So it was like six weeks, I believe, six to eight weeks, and I became a race relation instructor. <laughs> this is the way the military works. <laughs> so, um, so we did that, and then I came back to the base, and I worked with a, another individual, and uh, we basically did what we call rap sessions, and we basically got Coast Guardsmen together and just let them vent and talk about what was going on. By the time you were finishing in the Coast Guard, had you fallen in love with the ocean? Had you already, was it already becoming clear to you that you were going to work on oceans and ocean science? Yeah, really good question. So, um, as I indicated earlier, I was really interested in plasma physics. Well, plasma physics has a, basically a fluid component to it. And on our base, besides electronics uh, education, there were marine science technicians who were being trained. And so I met some of these marine science technicians, um, especially during the last year, and I got fascinated, and I decided, this is pretty interesting. I kind of like this ocean atmosphere thing. And uh, about that time, a little bit earlier, Princeton University um, made a partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to place a lab for numerical modeling of the atmosphere and the ocean. And this was on the Forestall campus at Princeton. So it had just begun. There were only, I, I don't think there were more than five or six students who preceded me in that uh, program. But the, uh, the, I have to go into some detail about the history of this lab because it's, it's pretty phenomenal. This lab uh, began actually out of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton where Einstein finished his career. And Joseph Smagorinsky had been at the Institute with John von Neumann, a very famous mathematician and computer uh, guru of, of the time with the beginning of, of, of computers. And they decided that uh, a really important problem was to utilize these new uh, large-scale computers, and ENIAC being the first one, really, out of the University of Pennsylvania, but in collaboration with the people at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, uh, ENIAC had been used for ballistic trajectories and a, a few other odd things. But uh, the people at the Institute for Advanced Study, including John Newman, John von Neumann, and Jewel Charney, and Joseph Smagorinsky, decided we could utilize that computer to do large-scale weather forecasting. And that was the beginning of the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab and program at Princeton University. That's pretty amazing to think that computers were not always a part of weather forecasting. Yeah, I agree. And that that lab where Tommy got his PhD, that he used ENIAC, which is basically the first digital programmable computer and it was developed secretly at UPenn for military purposes. Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's hard to imagine reliable weather forecasting on any scale, frankly, without collection and sharing of data from sensors via computers. And that's actually one thing Tommy pioneered was developing different types of sensors that could collect data remotely and then relay it through networks. 
That's a major transformation that he was part of, and it sounds like his research included atmospheres as well as oceans. Tommy, how would you describe the focus as you got involved in the research at the Princeton Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab? So it's basically dynamics and thermodynamics of the atmosphere coupled with an ocean model. And so the ocean is very important in all of this. And one of the important people in that was Kirk Bryan, who is basically the father of all numerical models of the ocean. So it was an amazing collection of people. And so they brought in myself, and I think that my class had one other person. So I had classmates of like six total in an environment of basically research. This was not traditional education. It was more of a Cambridge or Oxford style of mentoring. And um, I, I recall uh, my, my thesis advisor saying, okay, here's, um, here's a great book on fluid, fluid mechanics, which you go read that. Well, this is a 500-page book written by George Batchelor. He said, when you get done with that, I want you to read this other book by George Batchelor on turbulence. Did you actually read both of those huge volumes? I sure did cover? a couple times. <laughs> I wanted to get my PhD, you know. <laughs> I learned a lot. I, there's a lot I don't understand, you know. But, but nonetheless, I certainly gave it a, a fighting chance. Now, as to courses, it, most of the work was really done on the campus through mentoring. So we would sit down with one of the professors. It could be Manabi, it could be Smagorinsky, uh, you know, all, all of that cast of, of characters who were, but they weren't teachers. They, they were mentors. At what point did the culture shock of coming from this really rural setting and going out into the world in such a grand way, really, at what time did you sort of settle into yourself in this unexpected identity? This was culture shock, <laughs> to say the least. And... Um, so anyway, uh, again, I'm a pretty persistent person. I guess you've kind of figured that out. So one way or the other, I was going to make it through this. And uh, so I ended up doing my thesis on turbulence, small-scale turbulence, and internal gravity waves, which is basically motion of waves which occur due to stratification in the ocean. Very fundamental problems. One of my mentoring classes, if you like, was with uh, George Philander, who uh, basically developed the first models of ENSO and the atmosphere interaction with the ocean. My assignment was one that he threw out there. Here's, here's some ideas. See what you could do with it. And if you do well enough, you know, we'll pass you. So he, he threw out this problem of solving equations for equatorial waves. These are long waves. You're like thousands of kilometer waves propagating across um, the Gulf of Guinea off of Africa. So he said, that one might work for you. You want to try that? And I said, sure. <laughs> what a fool. <laughs> of course, he's an equatorial wave guy, and he was probably interested in the solution to this problem. And so he said, well, I don't really expect you to solve it, but I want to see how far you can get. I said, that's better. <laughs> So I, I took this problem, and um, I solved the equations on a computer, a very large computer. Princeton, incidentally, got the fastest computers on Earth for quite a long time. 
And so the fastest computer on earth is sitting there. And so I wrote up some code. I worked out some solutions. And I actually solved the problem. And uh, after I solved the problem, he said, hey, I'm kind of surprised you were able to do that. <laughs> so that, that helped my ego. You know, the ego meter went up. <laughs> so he said, well, I think you should pub." Yeah, so he said, I think you should publish this in the Journal of Physical Oceanography. So I said, well, that's another step. It's got to get through the review process. I am a total rookie at this. So I wrote up the paper. It got published. Amazingly, and that was my first uh, published paper. I almost get the image as you talk about all this of you on a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> good, good analogy. I do. <laughs> I, right, highs, lows. <laughs> So one day I, I put in my, my programs and then we put them in on uh, cards. This was way, way back when, when cards, card readers. So I put it in and so I go to pick out my output in the bin and you know, churn away with this big computer. And there's a huge, huge stack of computer paper waiting for me. I says, oh my God, what have I done? Well, I must have had an infinite do loop or something really bad in my code. So I could have been the person who brought down Princeton's gigantic computer through my own ineptitude. But it, it was fun, and uh, it, it's just a great time there. Yeah, I noticed in um, some of your writing in the paper that you talked about a transition from when the ocean was you know, entirely sampled from ships to the transition to really being able to do remote things with buoys or satellites. Can you just tell me a little bit more about your p positioning in that tr transition? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess you kind of have to go back to a little bit of history as well in this, in that um, from 1950 through, I would say maybe the early eighties, um, the, there was a, a, a different kind of thing going on with ocean oceanography. Ships were dominating because we didn't have autonomous samplers uh, from buoys so much, uh, drifters or whatever. And um, so in, in that regard, the ocean was vastly undersampled. In fact, uh, Walter Monk described the, the 20th century as a century of undersampling of the ocean. And that struck me. Uh, that we needed to sample the ocean on the proper scales. This means anywhere from seconds on up to, if you want to get into climate, seasonal for it, and certainly, and then on up to climate scale, tens of years and more. And so we needed to sample that in order to understand it, uh, to be able to get input into models and also to test the models. Are these models working or not? Well, I wasn't trained in any of this, but uh, I started doing experiments and talking to people. And from that, um, we developed programs where, which were interdisciplinary, studying the ocean on scales from seconds on up to decades using buoys, drifters, uh, and of course satellites came into play. So I started developing instruments, biogeochemical and biooptical sensors that could be collecting data on the same time and space scales as the physics. So we developed this time-space diagram, which ranged from seconds on up to decades, and from millimeters 
on out to global scale. So we created this figure, if you like, or diagram, and Monk had had one somewhat similar to that, but not as developed. And so we developed that, um, that diagram, and it, it became um, kind of the beacon for people designing experiments. Ships certainly still played a role, but it also led to the development of autonomous underwater vehicles, um, profiling uh, current meters with optical instruments that I worked on, all of these different things to fill in the time-space diagram. And so that's, that's kind of where this whole thing went. And uh, in, a, in a sense, it kind of went viral. So this diagram allowed you to see where the holes were and, and literally start developing instrumentation to fill in some of those gaps? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, really, that's a nice way of putting it. And as, as Walter Monk commented, the gaps were humongous, <laughs> basically. We're not sampling what we should be sampling. And I was very interested in episodic events. And, of course, ships can't go into areas where there are hurricanes coming through, and they can't be out there long enough to get the time series even very often to see, like, a mesoscale eddy. And so the instruments that I I developed with my colleagues were sampling down to seconds, minutes, and we we started really discovering interesting things um, in terms of what happens when a hurricane moves through an area. And so that, that became one of my favorites for quite some time in that uh, we had moorings uh, at, off of Bermuda and hurricanes would go virtually right over the mooring. And when that happened, we got these dynamic responses. The mixed layer, upper layer of the ocean deepened. We had injection of nutrients coming into the euphotic layer. And then you'd see these big phytoplankton blooms and this was like kind of earth-shattering. People hadn't seen this before. And it was done on time scales. You have certainly had an interesting career, Tommy. And I know from your AGU Perspectives paper that your retirement is interesting too, although your health forced you to retire. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I hated to re- have to retire. I took my dogs, my Great Pyrenees dogs, to class with me, which made me and especially my dogs a big hit. And uh, so I took, the, took my dogs to, to campus with me. And the, of course, the, the students loved the dogs. And uh, an outgrowth of that was that uh, at the same time, I was developing an, an interest in using them as therapy dogs. Um, uh, I had come across a good friend who um, suggested that after my dog Teddy had done very well in obedience class, that why don't you guys go ahead and get certified to be a therapy dog team? So that be, kind of began the whole therapy dog thing. And uh, so then in the course of time, I got more Pyrenees that I had adopted. And uh, so we kept doing therapy dog work. We went to schools, colleges, uh, hospitals, uh, nursing homes, Special Olympics. We went all over doing these therapy dog visits. And one of the um, places we ended up in the last, I guess, about four years was the California Science Center. So, of course, I, I had to nose around what other exhibits were going on besides ours. And one of the displays talked about dog sense of smell. 
And so I thought, hmm, this sounds cool. <laughs> because I've been developing sensors for the ocean, biogeochemical sensors, all kinds of sensors for some time. And I thought, and here's this dog that can smell way over 100 times better than a human being. Why can they do that, and how can we utilize it? I decided that I wanted to find out, could COVID be uh, detected using these dogs and their sense of smell? So I started reading books on medical, sense, medical scent dogs, and I started digging deep into the literature, as I always do. And I found uh, a few examples where people were training dogs on the COVID scent. And one of the people I met was Heather Junqueda, who has a small uh, research program down in Florida utilizing beagles to detect COVID and other things as well. And we had a long conversation. At the end of the conversation, I said, would you mind writing a paper on COVID scent dogs with me? And she says, oh, sure, let's do that. So we did. And uh, so the... The, the paper appeared in a journal of uh, medicine, and then the most recognition I've ever received in my life was after that paper <laughs> came out and it, it became viral. We were contacted from people all over the world, journalists from all over the world, who wanted to learn about uh, how dogs could be used to um, detect COVID. So Heather still does that. Uh, with individual dogs. It has, has its small uh, following. Uh, they've been used for Miami Heat basketball games, as an example, and at several airports in Europe. Yeah, that's so exciting. You're such a researcher at heart. <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't get away from it, right? You'll be studying something else <laughs> when, when you're 99. I, I, <laughs> I'm, awesome. I'm, crazy, I'm a crazy researcher. Vicky, mm -hmm. do you think your, what's your dog's name? Isla. 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 Do you think Isla could be a COVID detection dog? No. <laughs> I, no. Absolute, absolutely not. Absolutely not. She, no, she's scared of everything, but also barks at everything. Um, so it'd just be a bunch of like false she positives, just immediately, essentially. Yeah. She would just, whatever the signal would be, she would just immediately give it. <laughs> She would just be too scared. Yeah. No. What about what about your dog? Well, I mean, so uh, so my dog Tacoma, I, whom I love very very much. He's actually a Pyrenees, like oh. like Tommy's dogs. Uh, but honestly, I this would just not be his jam. Like he doesn't <laughs> love tasks. To oh. him, his job is to guard our yard from squirrels uh -huh. and a random set of hounds that walks by our house once in a while. Get pets and try to steal pizza. Wait, get pets. Oh, like uh, not oh, pets. like pets. Oh, pets. Like little, like like uh, yeah. Like scratches. like if you were to yeah, pets, a better word. Yes, oh. but if you were to pet a dog, yes. Not um, he does not have success in going after any like this one set of dogs. No, he's not trying to go after what, animals. He I, wants I, to be petted because he's a big softy. I thought he wanted his own pets. <laughs> he has. He does have a uh, a um a plush hedgehog that makes this like squeaky noise oh, that, that is must be annoying it is it's it's actually kind of adorable but the thing's oh. falling apart and so who knows i don't actually know if we're going to replace it when the time comes oh i feel like i just really revealed something about myself by immediately saying that sounds annoying 
Yeah, well, I mean, this is what we do on this this platform is tell the world things we probably wouldn't tell yeah. each other or people. Because <laughs> why not? <laughs> oh, my. And with that, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much, Devin, for bringing us this story and to Tommy for sharing his work with us. This episode was produced by Devin with audio engineering from Colin Warren. Artwork by Jay Steiner. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Please rate and review us. And you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all. And we'll see you next week. Why do you think they didn't want me to drive the Zamboni? Why do I think they didn't want you to drive the Zamboni? Mm -hmm. What about Um, me says I can't drive a Zamboni? I mean, what were your skills? Like, what was what was your quali- What were your qualifications? I could drive a car. Do you? Do, I can like wave. Did you ever drive a car that sits up like ten feet in the air that has rear <laughs> steering and drags like? Well, a thing that floats ice. I don't know. I know that's fair, but I feel like I drove a forklift before, <gasps> which has similar. Ste- I also worked in a lumber yard. I forgot to mention that one. But um, I drove a forklift, which has, which has rear steer, and I feel like that's important from a Zamboni perspective because oh, those things turn very rear, differently than cars do. Rear steer is rear different steer. from rear wheel drive. Rear wheel drive. Very different. Oh, I was going to say, I've driven many, many old cars that have like swooshed out on me. If oh, that's, see, that's different. Okay. See, that's a thing. You put down like classic car driver. And no, they, I didn't they, put they any they thought, of that nope. down. I like literally just walked in and was like, give me the application. They were like, th- leave, please. I think that you have your answer. I think they just looked at my face and said, no, thank you. It's pretty weird. <laughs>